welcome to the worst bestsellers, where we read about the virtues of poverty so you don't have to. I'm Renata. I'm Kate. And for this episode, we read The Christmas Sweater by Glenn Beck. Joining us to discuss this delightful piece of holiday cheer is Caitlin, a sweater enthusiast who spells her name differently from Kate. Hi, Caitlin. (laughs) Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Did did reading this book make you... Did it make you appreciate your sweaters even more? I mean, none of them are hand knit, so they're they're garbage. Yeah. (laughs) All right. Well, I'm sorry to hear that. (laughs) Um. So I want to say right off that this book is my fault. Uh, (laughs) When when Glenn Beck came out with this book, he also came out with a um like a children's edition that was a picture book. And it was when I was working as a bookseller and I was reading like all the new books that came in every day. And it was the worst book I had ever read. I I was so offended by it and angry about it that like I made everyone else read it. Because I was like, you won't believe this thing that we're trying to sell to children. Like it's so awful. So when I saw there was an adult version and we decided to do a Christmas theme for the month of December, I was like, well... I bet it'll be even worse than the picture book version, and I put it on the list. I was going to ask, do you know, did they come out simultaneously, or was the picture book an adaptation of this, or what was they the order? They came out simultaneously. Um, it's not exactly a an adaptation. It's the same general shtick. Um, the parents are both alive in this one, and they're just poor, and... Um, He sneaks down to, it's like the same sort of thing with Grandpa, where he sneaks down to look at the presents, and he doesn't see the bike he wants, and he's really mad, and then he goes to sleep, and he dreams of having fun and making holiday memories in his Christmas sweater, and when he wakes up, he realizes the true value of blah, 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 and... Like, it's actually kind of ungrateful, I feel, because in the picture book version, the, bo- the the bike is there under the tree, and he rushes past it to find his Christmas sweater. So this fucking bike that he's been bitching about for months, he just blows off on Christmas morning. And I'm sure his parents felt real good about that. <laughs> well, okay, um, so with that I, said, let's, let's I, talk about how that gets handled in this version, which is really strange. I felt throughout this book... It, it seems, and uh, when we were putting our notes together, Caitlin pointed out that this has two different co-authors, and so I really feel like we saw that struggle play out in the narrative, because it really does seem to be two different books with different themes. But the basic gist is we have this little boy named Eddie, who is, whose family is poor but noble in their poverty, and... He All he wants for Christmas is this bicycle. He walks past it all the time on display downtown. He wants this bike. And he thinks, you know, he's been really good all year. And so he's sure that he's he's earned this bicycle. And he's sure he's going to get it. But then he doesn't. He gets this garbage handmade sweater that his mom made him. And then he sulks about that. And because he's so sulky... Uh, they leave Christmas at his grandparents' house early, and his mom falls asleep at the wheel because she is working, like, four jobs because they're so poor. And so she dies on Christmas, or possibly Christmas Eve. Uh, she dies around Christmas because he's been such a little shit about this sweater. And so then the second half of the book is, like, after his mom's death, this, like, weird shame spiral that he goes into. And it gets really... There's, like, a ghost and some visions and it gets really weird uh and he essentially like at the end he alienates everyone because he's so angry about his dead parents and the sweater and all this other stuff that's not really ever very well articulated um, and he decides to run away because his grandparents are now raising him and gets into an accident on his bike because, surprise, the grandparents had bought him the bike, and if he hadn't been such a little shit at Christmas and <laughs> stayed the night, his mother would still be alive, and they were going to surprise him with the bike. I I forgot to say also that before all this happens, his dad dies of Christmas cancer the previous year. <laughs> mm-hmm. So this this bike sweater Christmas is the first one without dad around. 
It's pretty sad. Yeah. And so he gets into an accident on his bike and he has like a God vision in a cornfield about making good choices. And his ghostly Jesus neighbor appears to help him make the decision to accept love into his heart. And when he does, he wakes up in his bedroom, not at his grandparents' house, but at his house with his mom, because it was all a dream. And he just fell asleep on the ride home from grandma and grandpa's. And he 100% understands the value of his Christmas sweater and his mom and his grandparents and, I don't know, Jesus or something. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But here, okay, so here is what I really am most confused by and what I think we really need to break down is that it's sort of based on a true story of Glenn Beck that his mom did die when he was young and apparently there really was a sweater that he didn't appreciate until after she died and then he, you know, has the sweater. And uh, I guess in real life, Glenn Beck's, like, teen years and 20s were just sort of a destructive, like, alcoholic drug addiction spiral. And you can really see this kind of AA language throughout the book about needing to um, be humble and, like, accept help and all of that. But at the same time, there's very much this narrative of, like, tea party, conservative, pull yourself up from your bootstraps. Like, his family's very poor, and they make a point that they'll never go on food stamps. They would never accept help from anyone. But it's like, maybe if you had taken food stamps, maybe your mom wouldn't have had to work four jobs, and maybe she wouldn't fall asleep at the wheel and die, or fake die. Yeah, there's this segment that Renata's going to read later that's like a woman comes in to buy bread at the bakery that his father had owned before he died and she buys it with food stamps and Eddie the main character is like that's not real money and dad's like sometimes you know people who have worked really hard but still need a hand up like the government helps them out and then later he sees another guy come in and buy food stamps and dad's like oh no no because a lot of times people just take money from the government they're lazy i know that man he's just lazy he doesn't deserve the government's help because he could work but he's lazy it's weird (laughs) yeah yeah and his dad too says something like and and we would never take food stamps but it's okay when little ladies like this one do it but we would never no yeah and then even after their father after his father died they you know mom's working four jobs but she still never took anybody's help and he was proud of that because that's what dad would have wanted yeah it's and so there's there's these two lines throughout the book this like don't take handouts like don't be lazy like be self-made and the you know take help when you need it and you know humble yourself before your family to accept their love for you blah 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 blah. but then like also in his grief, like the majority of the book, after the mom dies in his dream, I guess, whatever, um, is him like struggling with his grief and with being a child and having no outlet for it. And I think that in better hands, this could have been a really lovely look at how hard it is to process loss at such a young age and like things like that. Like it's very much about his loss and it feels like both the don't take handouts and accept help when you need it. Morals are kind of like awkwardly woven around the edges of this main narrative about Eddie just being sad and angry and guilty and not knowing how to express that. Yeah, this book made, like, I feel genuinely sad for Glenn Beck at reading this. I feel a little embarrassed at having read it. Like, I feel like this maybe should have just gone to a therapist or mental health professional to, like, help him sort through this. I don't think that it should have been published for public consumption. I don't think it's ready. I don't know if Glenn Beck is, like, ready to talk about th- I'm, like, very serious. I feel kind of bad making fun of this because it makes me really upset. Yeah, I mean, I have to say my dad died when I was five. And so much of this book is like, this is where, you know, he is suffering on his own and no one's helping him. Whereas, you know, everybody made sure that I had a lot of help from professionals and I was able to deal with it as best I could. And, 
And everything in this book is just like what I was so glad didn't happen to me that I didn't have to go through it on my own. And it's more of a, you know, I don't want anyone to read this book and be like, okay, this is how kids should go through it. Because it's yeah, just I mean, like, the hard way. It just made me really angry. Like I was consistently angry when I was reading it because... I understand, like, obviously even books for adults written about children are going to be written differently than a book written for a child about a child. But there's so Mm -hmm. much in this book. The child in this book is 12 and then 13 years old. He's a child. Mm -hmm. And yet, like, there's this theme throughout of, you know, accepting help and accepting, you know, he's not accepting his grandparents' love and he should be. He's a kid. He's a Mm -hmm. kid who lost everything, you know? Like, the way that this book... It, it very much puts the onus on a child for mm-hmm. not doing the right thing. And even the other characters in the book continually put the onus on him for lashing out and acting out in the wake of all of these deaths and tragedy in his life. It feels like it's it's like Glenn Beck punishing himself for... Because, I mean, in the afterward, he's very clear that this character, Eddie, is directly based on him. I guess Edward is like his middle name it's like it's like him and he it's very clear that the narrator of this book thinks that eddie is garbage and just it's it's upsetting even when eddie is thinking to himself he's constantly saying like i should have known better i could have done better and i don't i don't see somebody at 12 being able to look outside of themselves and know that and also after this i i read glenn beck's wikipedia page and I guess his mom died of, like, possible suicide. Um, his real mom, not Eddie's mom in the book. Uh, which adds this whole other layer of fucked up, like, trauma to it. And I I don't know. It just really feels clear to me that Glenn Beck still is not done processing this. And I feel uncomfortable about it. Merry Christmas, everybody. (laughs) (laughs) It's just, it's like very bizarre. Like I'm with Renata. Like this is a book that should not exist in our hands. And not only is it not like narratively and structurally and kind of all over the place and not very well done and very well crafted, like... I, I want to not... interject here also. This book is printed on fancier paper than it needs to be, which follows <laughs> follows in the footsteps of books, books like The Secret and Rush Revere. Like, you know what? Charles Dickens wrote on regular paper. You can He wrote a newsprint, actually. Like, you don't need to have fancy paper. You should just take regular paper and worry about fixing other problems in your yeah, book. Like, it's got, at least my copy's got the, what is it, decal edges? Yeah, and it's, um, it's like sort of creamy, in- like ivory paper with like fancy um, I um, holly in the corners. Yeah, it's got like little inline holly illustrations. All the page numbers are midway up the book on top of a snowflake, and and they're printed in red too. Like there's a red border around each page. Like you know, it's there's some production values went into printing this book. But why? I can't help but wonder, like, because even looking at it when it first came out, like, it's very much made in the same style as, like, the Christmas shoes, the Christmas box, like, all those little, like, gift-sized Christmas books. It's there. It's very mm-hmm. similar yeah. to that. And I, I'm sure that when he was like, I have a book, a sad book about my life, and it took place at Christmas, they were like, all right, we're going to sell it to those uh, those Christmas shoes people. She doesn't have a book coming out this year. We're going <laughs> right. to sell you. We're going to sell them your Christmas book. But yeah, but it's not in the it's not really in the same vein as because most of those other books. Well, I don't know. I mean, because it does sort of have in common with the Christmas shoes, like this idea that I think is not uncommon, like holidays, make sure that it's about family, make sure you're appreciating your loved ones. But this one is so like victim blaming and he is the victim mostly mm-hmm. yeah. it it has a much darker edge i think than than you're right than the christmas shoes and most of these other like christmas time emotion manipulating books yeah it's it's like it's really it's weird it's uncomfortable 
it makes me angry, like I said. I And I, I was so angry that I couldn't even really be sad, which is weird for me because, like, I cry. Uh, me and my roommates started watching MasterChef Junior, and I cry five times an episode at least. <laughs> like, I cry very, very easily. And I did not even, my eyes did not even get wet through this book filled with personal tragedy and dead parents and... Oh. and you know, children who are unable to process their grief in a normal way and are ignored by everyone in their lives and No, everything. yeah, I didn't cry either. I felt upset in a sort of more just, like, unpleasant melancholy way. I Yeah, I didn't even get sort of the emotional release of crying. It was just more of a sort of, like, physical sensation of upsetness and unease. Yeah, it was definitely a lot more of just, like, ugh, then, oh. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And you're right, like, there is a layer of anger to it, too, especially if you sort of compare this note of, like, no food stamps and it's better to starve than, like, take help with, like, the shit that he is putting out in Fox News and, like, whatever other media outlets he has normally. Like, it just seems like you're... It seems like this is a cry for help while you are sort of publicly rejecting the need for help or the the idea that anybody else would ever need help. Yeah, it's very like I don't I don't know. It it just it, it's not it's not at all cohesive in what it's trying to say in a way that's almost dangerous. Mhm. Um, you know, between the don't take help and like people who take help are lazy and, but then at the same time, you know, it's supposed to be about love, loving your family and appreciating what you have, but I I don't, it's, it's kind of, it's a mess. There's this whole thing too that is never really explained, um, where when he starts living with his grandparents, he makes a new friend who lives nearby, whose family is super rich. Mm-hmm. And he is very envious of the life that they have. Like, the kid basically orders the parents around. He's allowed to do whatever he wants. They get he, to order soda when they go to restaurants. Yeah, because they were too poor for him to even order milk when he went out to dinner with his mother. Um And he spends, like, all his time there playing. And then when his grandparents say, you're spending too much time there, the kid starts spending all this time with him and his grandparents. And the kid is like, oh, like, I wish I lived here. Like, your grandmother's the best cook and your grandfather's so funny. And, you know, everything you have is great. And then when the kid, Eddie, is like, oh, but your parents, your house is great, too. Your parents let you do whatever you want you have everything you want and then like the kids just like well you know things aren't always what they seem and that's it Mm -hmm. like yeah I remember that it seemed like it was gonna I was not gonna be surprised if it turned out that um oh what's the friend's name Taylor oh yeah I I was not gonna be surprised if it turned out that Taylor was like being abused and Mm -hmm. but it, it wasn't or at least that was never stated explicitly or even like, clearly implied. It was more just, like, you know, the general malaise of being, like, a spoiled child. Yeah, the threat is completely dropped. It's never implied. And you would think that going by the appreciate what you have sort of thing, that because, you know, there's no other that we're told outside circumstances making Taylor so unhappy, that if he just appreciated what he had, and his parents just appreciated what they had, then they'd be just as happy as... Whatever, but... It's very strange. It's all over the place. The whole thing's all over the place. Mm -hmm. It's... Yes. (laughs) I wonder if if some of it was like, well, we gotta get this, like, ready to go so we can get the the holly printed out and have this in stores by, like, (laughs) November. And I I wonder if, you know, maybe they should be like, you know what, let's hold off and sell this, like, next Christmas. Let's, uh, you know, give give the editors another pass on this. And Glenn Beck was just like, nope. It's ready. Like, I, I can feel in my heart that this story is ready to go. And they were like, okay. Well. <laughs> oh, gosh. Yeah. Contradictory mess. Yeah. And even, I mean, like, we we gave Christmas shoes some real shit for, like, being manipulative and schmaltzy. But, like, I'll I'll give this to Christmas shoes. Like, at least when that mom died, she stayed dead. She was... <laughs> <laughs> 
And Glenn Beck can't even commit to that. <laughs> he is a real flip flopper. Yeah. I felt like, like... <laughs> I knew going in, um, I knew having gone into it that it was like vaguely based on a true story from remembering um, reading the back flap when I read the picture book. And then I like looked into it more. And then he says like right at the end that, you know, this is based on a true story, except that my dad didn't die. And my mom like didn't really die at Christmas time in a, you know, perfectly timed for my ungrateful behavior car wreck and like none of this actually really happened but she knit me a sweater once and then I had trouble dealing with her death so I wrote this book right. it's just like it seems like tragedy piled on tragedy like the, the dad dies of Christmas cancer and they're so poor and then the mom dies of Christmas car wreck while you know because he's an ungrateful little shit and it's all his fault and, and, and it's I mean, like okay. so like they're so poor how poor were they that the dad owns a bakery and they literally can never afford to eat bread like i'm like bread is the cheapest thing that you could make like it's just flour and water i don't like that's comical that doesn't even that's like dickensian like we work in a bakery and we can never afford bread literally like what were you even eating then they make a joke, like, she makes the the old, like, the cobbler's sons never have new shoes joke about the bakery and the bread in the book. Right. But I've, like, worked with, I've never worked at a bakery, but I've worked with enough food service type things. There's always food left over mm-hmm. that they throw away at the end of the day. That's true. Like, I find it very hard to believe that he works in a bakery like they're legally required to get rid of everything after a certain point that's wasteful liberal talk (laughs) and in this bakery they only made exactly enough as to sell and no more and should they ever have excess it goes to the nice little old lady who happens to need food stamps only because she's a widow right it's just it's like like he really wanted to make this the most possible tragedy to happen to this kid, which just makes me angrier that he goes through a whole year of his life and no one cares or tries to help him at all with his grief. Yeah. Well, grandma tries a little, but she gives up when he starts being mean. Yeah. Like, and I mean, I get that they're all, they're supposed to be old people and that they don't have a teenager and that, you know, they haven't had a kid in a really long time. But at the same time, like, yeah, all everyone he loves is dead. And, like, tragically directly linked to his ungratefulness. Like, you gotta give him room to be mad. You gotta give him room to go through grief. Like, just because he's not perfect right after his parents are dead doesn't mean that you're like, well, I tried. Like, it's kind of fed into a whole thing that was going on, too. You know, they they always wanted him to be super respectful and like he had to listen to everything his grandfather said and respect his grandmother and be kind to his neighbors and could never be anything but perfect. Any, you know, unwanted emotion was just a complete failure on his part. Yeah. Very upsetting. Um, maybe we should transition now into doing our dramatic readings just so you guys can now <laughs> get like you know, a, a direct undiluted dose of what we're talking about. Sounds good. Um, we're going to start off with the part that we keep referencing, which is Renata talking about uh, reading the bit where different people try to use food stamps at Eddie's father's bakery. <clears throat> After her bread had been bagged and her free treats boxed, Mrs. Olson reached into her purse and pulled out a kind of money I'd never seen before. As far as I could tell, it wasn't cash. It looked more like coupons, except we didn't offer any coupons. As she turned to leave the store, my heart began to race. Had Dad just been scammed right in front of me? The bakery paid our bills. And, more importantly, it paid for my presents. I Presents like gifts, by the way, not like his presents. Um, I crept up next to my father at the cash register and, not thinking she could hear me, whispered, Dad, that's not money. Mrs. Olson stopped dead in her tracks and looked at my father. He, in turn, glared at me. Eddie, into the back, please, right now. His voice had a definite edge to it. He then gave Mrs. Olson a sympathetic nod and another warm smile, and she turned and continued out the door. I knew I was in trouble. 
As I walked through the opening into the back, my face felt hotter than the oven I was now standing in front of. Eddie, I know you didn't mean it, but do you know how embarrassing that was for Mrs. Olson? No, I replied. I honestly didn't. Eddie, Mrs. Olson is a very good customer of ours. Her husband passed away about a year ago, and she's had a hard time making ends meet. You're right, what she gave me isn't money, but it's just like it for people who need it. They're called food stamps, and our government is helping her buy groceries until she can get back on her feet. We don't talk about them in front of her because she doesn't like the fact that she has to ask others for help. Dad explained that while our family would never accept help from anyone, especially the government, there were good people who needed it. I immediately felt sorry for Mrs. Olson. Sorry for anyone who needed to rely on others for that kind of help. And I was glad that we would never be in that position. A few months later, I got a chance to prove to my father that I'd learned my lesson. Mom had once again run to the bank, and I was in the front of the store putting fresh macaroons into the display case while Dad waited on customers. I watched as, once again, he accepted the funny-looking coupons as payment, this time from a guy buying bread, a pie, and a dozen cookies. But now, instead of warm smiles, friendly conversation, and yummy dessert suggestions, my father was completely silent. After the customer left, it was my turn to do the questioning. I followed him into the back. "'What's wrong, Dad?' I asked. "'I know that man, Eddie. He can work, but he chooses not to. Anyone who can earn money has no business taking it from others.' I eventually came to understand that my father, who'd grown up poor and struggled for everything we owned, had continually, continually rejected offers of help from others. He had worked hard to build a business and provide for his family. He believed others should do the same. The government, he told me one night, is there to act as a safety net, not a candy machine. Wow. <laughs> Meanwhile, well, meanwhile, is... Eddie literally doesn't get any bread to eat. I don't understand. <laughs> oh, gosh. Just take the bread from the government, Eddie. <laughs> it's okay it's... to eat food. Just these weird, like, cross-purposes. Like, we don't need help, but you need to accept help. But only the right kind of help. And God needs to be involved. And I don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, that, I mean, those few pages are really, like, it in a nutshell. Yeah. Yeah. Whew. All right. I'm going to read a little part about Eddie's new rich friend, Taylor, and his family uh, to really give you... A- a glance into how comically rich and spoiled Taylor is. How rich is he? Well, let's find (laughs) out. (laughs) As I now sabered my real soda pop, I noticed that Mr. Ashton was wearing a suit and tie, something I'd never seen my father or grandfather wear outside of church. I wasn't a clothing expert, but his suit looked expensive, and I could tell that Mr. Ashton's shirt wasn't exactly homemade. I was so busy noticing all the expensive things that they had that I didn't notice how little the Ashtons actually spoke to each other. About halfway through dinner, Mr. Ashton broke the silence by saying that he had a surprise. He had some work to do in Southern California, and he was going to take the family with him so they could all go to Disneyland for a week. To my surprise, Taylor didn't look the least bit excited. In fact, he looked angry. Oh, come on, he said. Not again. I'm so sick of going there. I couldn't believe it. How many times had they gone? What kid could ever be sick of Disneyland? If you guys want to go, Taylor continued, that's fine, but I'm staying home. There were a few moments of uncomfortable silence. I was prepared for Taylor to get the, now listen here, young man, speech that I would have gotten had I made a comment like that, but it never came. Instead, Taylor's mom simply said, oh, well, maybe that would be okay. What? I couldn't believe this family. You know, Taylor, his father continued while staring down at his meal. If that's what you want to do, then I think it's fine. The last thing I want to do is drag you around to some place you don't want to go. Maybe we can find somewhere else to go later in the summer. I wanted to shout out, you can drag me around. But I think I was still in shock. Not only did Taylor not want to go on vacation to California, but he'd also told his parents he was going to stay home and they'd said yes. He was my new hero. 
It was as if Taylor had been a grown-up and his parents had treated him as such. My grandparents sure could learn a lot from Stan and Janice. They were the perfect family. And they always had bread to eat. (laughs) (laughs) It's just, it's so over the top. It's so like, oh, Disneyland, fuck that shit. God, mom. (laughs) What a terrible idea. Like, what? Oh, my God. Like, I know people. You're rich. I know people who live in Southern California or live in Orlando and don't fucking get sick of Disney World to that extent. Like, come on. That's, yeah, that's just what happens if you're rich and don't. I don't even know. And are some (laughs) mysteriously unhappy in some way that's never really clarified or articulated. Mm -hmm. Sounds right. Mom drinks. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. All right. So uh, next up, Caitlin and I are going to read a little bit about the reveal of the bike that Eddie has been wanting. I'm going to be Eddie and Caitlin is going to be Grandpa. I'm going to be quietly outraged because this part made me furious. Okay. Eddie, we can't control what happens to us, but we can control how we react to it. We were all meant to be happy. Even you, Eddie, as hard as it is for you to believe it sometimes, you were meant to be happy. If you're not happy, it's not God's fault. It's not my fault or anyone else's fault. It's your own. The words lit a fire inside of me. I rushed to put it out before it began to melt the coldness I had come to depend on when I felt threatened by kindness. You're only trying to make excuses for God and for yourself. I'm not happy because of me? Really? Where was God when Mom couldn't even keep food in the house? Where were you when Mom was spending every free minute turning that yarn into the only gift she could afford? I thought family was supposed to take care of family. You're out of line, son. No, I'm not. I'm right, and you know it. Everyone was trying to help you too, Eddie, but your mom always refused it. We aren't rich, mind you, but we could have done more than she let us. She wanted to take care of you herself. She felt like a hand up was the same as a handout, and she didn't want that. She didn't want to feel like she'd failed. She was wrong, and she was stubborn. I guess you two have even more in common than I thought. Let me show you something. Grandpa squeezed between the sewing machines and the shelving and into the corner of Grandma's part of the barn. I followed him, and we stood next to each other in front of a green canvas tarp. It smelled like camping. He looked at me again, as if he still wasn't sure whether he should do what he was about to. After what seemed like an eternity, he finally said, Your mother didn't know about this. She wouldn't have liked it. She would have thought it was too much. He grabbed the center of the tarp and pulled it away. A brand new Huffy, which is the bike that he wanted. I was speechless. It was the gift I'd wished for, but had never gotten. Bright red with a black black vinyl banana seat and big curved chrome handlebars. My gaze shifted down to the tires. Twenty playing guards had been placed in the spokes of each wheel to make a custom clicking sound as the wheels turned. I recognized the cards immediately as being from Grandpa's favorite deck. No wonder he wouldn't play with me that day, I thought. My guilt multiplied. I couldn't move. My mind was a tangled mess of thoughts, memories, and emotions. See, Eddie, sometimes the gift you want most is right in front of you, but you have to get out of your own way to, to receive it. I couldn't speak, but the expression on my face said more than I ever could. Grandma knew that I'd taught you some of my present hunting tricks, so she wouldn't let me hide this anywhere in the house. We planned to give it to you as soon as we were done with our other gifts, but then you gave your mother a hard time about staying over. I, well, I wanted to teach you a lesson. Grandpa's words trailed off as tears escaped from his eyes and slowly rolled down his cheeks. Grandpa was crying. Son, If I thought something as simple as a bike could make you happy, I would have given this to you a long time ago. But a bike can't. No material thing can. You have to find your way back to the things that will give you the lasting happiness. And you can't buy them in a store. I feel like it's just like the least funny Arrested Development episode. Just like, that's why you don't teach lessons. Because your mom will die. (laughs) (laughs) Like, it's so... Uh, it just seems so, like, stupid, not stupid, mean to play with an 11-year-old kid like that or a 12-year-old kid like that. To know he's a kid. He doesn't know any 
better, that this is what he wants so badly, and to see that he obviously was disappointed not to get it, and then, like, I get that you expect him to be grateful, and you expect it to raise him to be grateful, but he still is also dealing with the death of his father, and, like, why are you fucking with him? Why are you, I feel like, if anything, that's the lesson moment, to be like, look, I got you the bike anyway, or Grandpa got you the bike anyway, and you need to be more respectful of everything and everything has meaning and blah 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 rather than i don't know yeah like like no matter what you think we still love you and here's the bike you want or something i know you could have had the bike and mom but you killed her and you killed your (laughs) happiness oh god i hate this All right, um, this next one. So we've been talking a lot, I guess, about, like, the anger and the guilt and, like, all this stuff living with the grandfather and the way that all that is handled. But um, the actual, like, climax of this book is this weird ghostly, godly, Jesusly, like, literal come-to-Jesus moment in a crazy fantasy sequence. Like, God has kind of been there throughout the book, but, like, suddenly, like, God is literally a character in the book who is saving Eddie's soul from damnation, and it's very abrupt and strange. So, of course, we're going to share some of that with you. Kate will be the voice of Eddie, and Kate Lynn will be the voice of Russell, who's this, like, spiritual ghostly neighbor who Eddie hangs out with sometimes, who gives, like, wise advice and doesn't, isn't real. And um, I will be the voice of the cornfield, which I think is also Jesus, or... Jesus is everywhere. Yeah, the cornfield speaks to him in this vision. And also, um, as a Midwesterner, I I wanted to be the cornfield, but I also want to fact check this book because it's set in Washington State, and I don't think they grow corn there. But I guess with God, all things are possible. (laughs) All right. (laughs) Nothing looked familiar. The land was flat and dead and barren. An endless pattern of brown, black, and gray corn stalks as far as I could see. Then, as I looked behind me, I saw a road, but it wasn't the one I had traveled earlier. It was broken and desolate, and at the end of it lurked something that filled me with terror. A dark, undulating storm. Where had it come from? Why hadn't I seen it earlier? A new, brash voice spoke to me. It seemed to come from the cornfield itself. You were right, Eddie. God doesn't care. He never has. The words echoed my own thoughts and should have been comforting, but the tone of voice sent a shiver down my spine. The now familiar soft whisper responded. <laughs> Whose line is that? <laughs> I think it's Russell. Or no, my... that's, no, I think that's the cornfield. No, because the next line is the cornfield. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so I guess it's like... <laughs> Cornfield is the devil, and then the soft whisper is Jesus, a.k.a. Russell. Okay. (laughs) I think we can all agree this book is a mess. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. God loves you, Eddie. Come home. Everything will be all right. No, Eddie, the cornfield rebutted, its voice growing in strength. This is where you belong. The cornfield is your home. I looked up at the storm again. Black, deep green, and silver swirled together in a cloud that breathed and heaved in the sky. The storm seemed strangely alive, beckoning. In a voice that sounded like my own, the cornfield mocked, I'll earn it. I promise. But each time the brash voice spoke, it was countered by the comforting whisper, Come home. home. I can't go home, I cried. I don't even know how to get there from here. Face the storm. The cornfield responded immediately as a panic that I might listen to the whisper. The storm will crush you, Eddie. It destroys all who face it. The voice was gaining confidence by the minute, growing louder and stronger. Look around, Eddie. You are home. This is where you belong. I looked around and knew the voice was right. This was the place I deserved to be. It offered no comfort, but at least I knew there wouldn't be any more pain. You're worthy of so much more, Eddie. The gentle whisper was now barely audible. I knew it was losing. You just have to take the first step. 
I was trapped. In front of me was a path to a storm that promised nothing but death. Behind me was a wall of shadow and regret. So there I stood, afraid to go forward and unable to go back. The storm shrieked and groaned and I stared into it. I collapsed to my knees and began to cry again, but this time I didn't just cry. I cried out, Mom! I saw her face in my mind, all of the guilt and anger and blame that had been building since Mom's death, and long before then, rushed out of me in a torrent. It took me a full minute to mix those few words into the sobbing, choking, and shuddering words that filled the air around me. Then I prayed. God, I cried, everything I do I screw up. Please find a way to let everyone know how sorry I am for everything I've done and everything I failed to do. Images of my mom and dad, grandmother and grandpa flashed quickly in my head. I didn't care about myself anymore. I was resigned to a life that looked like a lot like the cornfield I was standing in, but I couldn't stand the thought of not being able to make amends for all that had happened. I don't really know what I expected, but I opened my eyes and the world still looked exactly the same. Pre-dawn darkness, a wall of dead corn behind me, and the surreal churning storm in front of me. A sickening, hopeless feeling filled my chest. Maybe it's too late. As if in reply to my thoughts, the whisper spoke again. Face the storm, Eddie. Something rustled in the corn behind me. I spun around. Hello, Eddie. It was a new voice, but it was strangely familiar. A man emerged from the blackness. The light from the storm's flashes offered me a quick glimpse of his face. Russell? I wonder how long he had been there. Is everything all right, Eddie? I rose to my knees and brushed myself off. No. Where are you going? Home. Then what are you doing here? I'm lost. That's not exactly true. It's not? No. You're exactly where you're supposed to be. What is this place? It's the world that you made for yourself. I made? Do you know how you got here? I got into an accident on my bike, so I ran into this cornfield. Then the road vanished and the storm came. No, Eddie. I mean, do you know how you got here? When you choose the path. You choose the destination. Little by little, it hit me all at once, I knew. Little by little, mistake by mistake, I had put myself on a road whose destination had been... Again came the whisper. All journeys, for good or evil, begin with one small step. And that kind of goes on for a long time until, like, he literally has a come-to-Jesus moment. It's probably like 25% of the book is in yeah. this cornfield. It's really, it's a mess. This whole book is a mess. Mm-hmm. I had a really hard time with this part in particular because, you know, at the end, Glenn Beck goes into how important this scene was for him and how he really tried to describe it as accurately as he could. And I just had so much trouble with it. Yeah, so I'm I'm going to read now. Our last dramatic reading is from the um, little postscript that's just um, from Glenn Beck himself. And uh, he, he talks about um, a little bit about how, you know, his mom actually died, blah, blah, blah. And then he says, One night I had a dream. The broken road, the dying cornfield, a storm unlike anyone should ever have to witness with their own eyes. Nowhere to go. Then an old mysterious man showed me the way. I woke up from the dream at three o'clock in the morning and immediately went to get my paints to try to recreate the scene on both sides of the storm. Despite my very best efforts, I just couldn't get it quite right. I have tried and failed many times since. I wonder if even in this book I have really captured the coldness of the cornfield, the true warmth of Eddie's experience on the other side of the storm and the light of the stranger this book calls Russell. Maybe it was never meant to be fully recreated. Just like in my dream, maybe we are supposed to see only a hint of the message and messenger and leave the rest to fate. In the final pages, Eddie is given a second chance. That, my friend, is a gift to me and from me to you. It is the real gift that I now see as represented by that last present I received from my mother. 
It is the understanding that you can be forgiven, that you can start over, and that if you face your greatest fears and regrets, the sky will open up and you will find happiness and love. And then it goes on to a long, like, literal discussion of the Christ child. And, like, it gets into some, like, heavy Christian redemption. But, again, I mean, this really just cements my belief that this should have stayed in a dream journal, in a therapy session. Like, he's still working this out. It is not ready to be in this book. We should not have read it. Uh, yeah, this whole thing's a mess. Yep. With, with that well, in mind, uh, let's play some Would You Rather. <laughs> Sounds like a good antidote. Would you rather have your mom die of Christmas cancer or Christmas car accident? Um, I'm going to go with Christmas cancer because at least if it's Christmas cancer, you know it's coming and you have a long time to tearfully say goodbye before her Christmas funeral. Mm-hmm. I would have to go with Christmas car accident. <laughs> There's probably less suffering for the Christmas car death. I yeah. <laughs> mm, that's true. Although mm. I, I wonder, I mean, in this ex- I wouldn't I would definitely not want to have it be Christmas car accident specifically caused by my ungrateful attitude. I mean, that's that's a lot to carry <laughs> around with you. At least with cancer like <laughs> I mean, you'll you'll still have, like, the terrible feelings of grief, but it's a lot harder to feel like you're responsible for the cancer than for the car accident. True. All right. The next would you rather is, would you rather starve or go on food stamps? Um, I'll, go, I'll go on food stamps myself. Yeah. I <laughs> absolutely would go on food stamps rather than starve. Uh... Yeah, not even a question. Yeah, I, I pay into um, the government for this reason. If, you know, if other people need to go on food stamps, I'm happy to pay for it. If I need to go on them someday. I Like, I understand that there's definitely some shame attached to that. And, like, you know, people, like, obviously I would prefer not to have to. But if it comes down to starvation or food stamps, I'll take them, please. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> and finally would you rather be rich and mysteriously unhappy in a way that's never explained or be poor and be happy in theory but really kind of angry and miserable um which option has more sweaters well, angry and miserable <laughs> I don't know because I feel like angry and miserable you get like one really nice sweater that someone hand knit for you but if you're rich you could pretty much buy as many sweaters as you want mm-hmm. and I wear mean, them they're to not, Disneyland yeah they're not made, made with love your, your mother's love isn't in every stitch but like I bet they're warm mm-hmm, mm-hmm. they have bread in the pockets yeah <laughs> <laughs> I personally am going to vote for being rich and mysteriously unhappy in a way that's never explained um, because I, you know, feel like uh, I could maybe make myself happy eventually. Yeah, with with that option, I feel like you could, like, um, drink yourself happier, probably. Yeah. Because you can yeah. afford, like, all the booze you want. And when you're going to Disneyland, they have amazing waffles. Yeah, yeah. See? Yeah, it's the happiest place on earth. Mm-hmm. So I'll go with that. <laughs> I mean, being a lover of sweaters, clearly I have to be rich. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, even, even hand-knit sweaters, I mean, wool is not cheap. I'm not, you know. Yeah, you just get that one, and especially if you're 11, you're going to outgrow it pretty quick. Mm-hmm. You're gonna get holes in the elbows real fast. <laughs> Even if you don't have a bicycle to ride, you'll find some other way of getting into trouble. You ungrateful wretch! <laughs> <laughs> oh, this book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, okay, let's go now into reader's advisory with what we suggest that you read um, instead of or in addition to this book. Although I- I'm gonna start out say. I don't think that I've said it this whole time. I don't think this book should have been published. I don't think that you should read it. I think it's very uncomfortable. 
So we'll just say straight up instead of this book. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I got a couple. I mean, straight up, if you read this or if you're thinking about reading this, probably you're also thinking about reading one of Glenn Beck's other books. I think they're all pretty political and not horrible, tragic Christmas nightmares. But, you know, if you're going that way, maybe you should pick that up instead. Um, and I'm going to for real recommend a graphic novel called Superpowered Revenge Christmas, which can be found at superpowerrevengechristmas.com, um, which is recently published, written by Bill Corbett and um, with Len Peralta doing the art. And it's like a really fun kind of Christmas story. And you'll like it much better than this. Um, going um, along the lines of needing a death experience or something to appreciate what you've got, um, I will suggest Before I Fall by Lauren Oliver and If I Stay by Gail Foreman, which are both young adult novels about teenage girls who in some way um, get, a, get a second chance. And I, I like them both very much. And they don't make me feel terrible and dead inside like this book does. <laughs> if you like the sudden reveal that a supposedly dead parent is not actually dead, I'm going to go and suggest A Little Princess. So there's that. If you like the, you know, happy redeemed ending part of it, that's a good one to pick up. For some suffering and sadness, there's always Little Women by Louisa May Alcott. Yes. They are deserving poor if there ever was. <laughs> um, along those lines, I'll also recommend the Little House on the Prairie series by Laura Ingalls Wilder. And especially what made me think of this, I'll have to see if I can find it. But a while ago, I read an article talking about how, particularly the later books like The Long Winter, it's clear that Laura Ingalls Wilder's political views were getting, were at odds with her narrative because, um, I guess she was a, a libertarian and she didn't believe in government handouts, but it's very clear that she and her family and everyone in the Dakota territories basically was starving to death and needed some kind of help. And uh, you can you can watch that play out and, spoiler, see them eventually get some help from a, a wealthy farmer and survive the winter. Um, I'm going to try to find the title of this book. I just thought of it a little bit earlier. But I definitely remember reading in, I think, fourth grade. Um, it was part of our, like, you know, the whole class reads the same book sort of thing instruction. And it was a Kwanzaa story about, it was very similar, about a family that's really poor and the son really wants a bike and he really wants it because he, if he has a bike, he can get a paper route and he can help the family out. And it's, you know, about learning to be grateful for what you have, but also, ex- like the joy of giving and the joy of receiving and it was much much better than this but okay, i don't are, know what are you are you participating in the war on christmas right now by suggesting a <laughs> i am <book? laughs> i i am right. absolutely actually no you know what i'm not because i remember the title of the book is have a happy because the kid's birthday is i think like december 24th or something so it would be his birthday Christmas and then Kwanzaa and he wished that that's why he felt comfortable asking for a bike because it could be the one gift for all three holidays all right then (laughs) so yes all right are we uh ready to move on to candy pairing yeah I just one more time want to stress please do not read this book yes (laughs) (sighs) some you know sometimes we read these books I'm like yeah it was actually pretty do not please do not even look at this book yes so, Renata, what's your candy pairing for this one? Uh, no candy. You do not deserve any candy. You're ungrateful children, and candy is a government handout that you have not earned. All right. Good choice. Good choice. Um, I personally went with Werther's Originals, which have a long history of being pushed by grandfathers onto ungrateful grandchildren everywhere. And I had to go with Violet. Uh, the packaging, you know, makes them look like they would be delicious, but really they just taste like funeral flowers and sadness. Accurate. Just like this one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> All right. And well, as you've heard, we've had some trouble unpacking this, but if you had to, if you had to pin it down, what would you say the moral of the story is? If you're ungrateful, you'll literally kill your mom. And with Jesus, you can travel back through time and fix everything. 
Uh, my moral is similar to Kate. Uh, your mom is mortal, so you should appreciate everything she does for you. Sounds good. Sounds like some solid thoughts <laughs> about this book that no one else should read. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, speaking of, of mortal moms, uh, let's turn now to Dorte's <laughs> Corner, where we give my cat Dorte a, a small moment to uh, share his thoughts and opinions about the book. Yeah, that was that was very insightful, Duarte. Thank you for sharing. Yeah. And I'm, I'm really sorry you had to read this, buddy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I feel like that's that's pretty much in line with what I thought. And, uh, you know, it's always good to, to feel my opinions reinforced by you. <laughs> it was really nice to hear him, you know, put it together a lot better than Glenn Beck was able to. <laughs> Big time. <laughs> yep. Oh, man. That was a book. <laughs> All right. Do any do any humans have any closing thoughts? <laughs> just really don't, don't read this read book. It. Really, I mean, of everything that it we've read private. so far, just really, this is the one that I would absolutely most say. No matter how curious you might be, do not read it. Really, do not read this book. Yeah, I would say I feel like although it's very different, the picture book does sum up the story a little bit more cohesively than this without all of the uncomfortable, painful, personal um, grief and warning played out on the page. So if you want to read something that's so bad that it's funny and makes you angry, I would say do that again, but just skip this because it's the wrong kind of anger. Um, I wrote a review of that book when I first read it, and I'll see if I can find it and link to it in the, um, the notes post. I think um, a, a corollary to our closing thoughts would be, you know, as, as we all know, there is a lot of stigma about talking about mental health and getting support for that. And I feel like this book is a really good example for, like, y- you should absolutely get support for when you go through trauma and you should have someone to talk to about it and you should not have to, like, be blamed for having feelings. Yeah, and, you know, if you see that there is... A person or especially a child who probably doesn't know how to speak up for their own feelings about their own feelings in times like this like reach out help them mm-hmm. be, be sensitive be kind don't be gun back be yes. kind <laughs> oh. Oh. Uh. Uh. Also, um, this this is our Christmas episode, so uh, Merry Christmas to all our listeners who celebrate Christmas, and happy winter times if you do not celebrate Christmas. Um, happy Atheist Kids Get Presents Day. Mm-hmm. That's a good one. I like that. Happy Hanukkah. Well, Hanukkah's over, but yeah. we'll do the thing that you know people do and lump Hanukkah in even when it's already happened. Yeah. And happy Kwanzaa. I recommended a Kwanzaa book for you if you're reading and you celebrate that. Mm-hmm. Uh. All right. Uh, so coming up next, our first episode of the new year will be Outlander by Diana Gobbledon. I don't know if that's how you said her name, but I'm just going through for it. And sometime probably either between this episode and that episode or maybe just after that episode, uh, stay tuned for a special mini episode where we discuss our favorites and least favorites that we've read this year beyond this podcast and in the rest of our reading for fun. Yeah, I already forgot we're doing that. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I've already forgotten that other books besides the Christmas sweater exist. (laughs) (laughs) But if you like us and you want to hear more, um, feel free to follow us on Twitter at Worst Bestseller with no S. If you listen to this, um, you should just really tweet us some positive emojis. I'm seriously, like, very down from this book. I could use that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You can also download our episodes on iTunes and Stitcher. And if you do, uh, please rate and review us there because, I don't know, we get, like, extra special podcast points if we get lots of good reviews. And Ted Leopard um, is one day being ranked on iTunes up there with all those, you know, right up there with cereal. We could be all we need is one more rating <laughs> from you guys <laughs> and a compelling uh, mystery. We need one of those. You, 
<laughs> if you have any ideas for books that you'd like us to cover, you can email us at worstbestsellers at gmail.com. Or, you know, just if you want to say hi and tell us you appreciate all the work that we do in reading these awful books that make us feel like garbage. <laughs> I... <laughs> I think that's all. <laughs> um, oh, um, Caitlin, thanks for joining us. Um, do you have any anything that you want to recommend to people? Just still never read this book. <laughs> <laughs> if you take one thing away from this, do not read the Christmas sweater. <laughs> all right. <laughs> thanks for listening to this. Um, and happy holiday season. And we'll we'll see you around the internet. Bye. 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 Bye.